dismiss our school-age kids to the back. And when they're doing that, let me uh, invite you, if you haven't already, to open uh, your Bibles up or devices to uh, that passage that uh, Kate just read for us in Exodus 7. Uh, I know it's, uh, at least for Bozier, it's spring break, so we've got uh, many that have already left to go uh, catch a, a quick breath of fresh air and then try to hit this thing hard and strong before um, summer gets here. This is kind of our last thing, and um, it's good. M- many of our staff are actually going to a conference this week, so pray for them. Um, and I'm going camping with my family, so pray for me, right? Uh, no, the, the, a lot of our staff are going to a, uh, a conference in Atlanta, and I think that's going to be really, really good and enjoyable for them. I'm praying, um, traveling safety over them and for our church. Um, pray with me real quickly as we dive into God's word before we dive in. God, thanks for today. Thanks for the truth of your word as we open up... Um, this portion in Exodus chapter 7, I pray, Father, that it wouldn't be just words that we read, but you would make it come alive to us. And, Father, that you would do through your word what only you can do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. To catch you up real quickly, if you remember, um, chapters 5 and 6 we covered last week of God just trying to build some confidence in Moses. So Moses, uh, raised in the house of Pharaoh, um, felt that God was doing and going to do something through him to uh, deliver the people of Israel who had been in Egypt now for 430 years. And God had made a promise long ago to Abraham that he was going to give them this promised land. And because of the famine and through Joseph, we don't have time to go through the whole thing, they're in Egypt, they've stayed in Egypt, and Exodus starts with, and there came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And so that's kind of where they are. Progressively, through the leadership of the Egyptians, uh, the plight of the Israelites has gotten worse and worse. And um, it kind of culminated with Pharaoh being so angry with, uh, with the Israelites that he ordered um, the midwives uh, to kill all the boys. And when that didn't work as his plan was, then he ordered... Um, that anyone who sees an Israelite boy um, under the age of two should take him and throw him into the Nile. And so to say things are, are really bad is just an understatement. Um, we live in an age of a lot of political rhetoric. Um, anytime you turn on the news, there's breaking news, right? It's always breaking, breaking news all the time. And uh, if we're not careful, we get kind of numb to what is going on around us. But needless to say, The plot of the Israelites is far greater, worse uh, than we could even imagine, if you can imagine living in that kind of environment. So Moses, um, who had once thought that God was leading him to go deliver these uh, Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians, he did it his own way and in his own timing, killed one of the uh, Egyptian taskmasters, and it got known that he did that, so he fled to the desert in a place called Midian. He's in Midian for 40 years. He's 80 years old at the time. He's walking by a burning bush that's not consumed. God speaks to him. You remember this whole thing. Introduces himself. 
Moses has this phenomenal God encounter. And God says, I've got these plans for you. This is what I want you to go do. Through the conversation back and forth, Moses goes and does it. He goes to Pharaoh. He makes the request that uh, God had set forth to let the Israelites go back into the wilderness so they could worship God. It didn't go as Moses planned for it to go because things only got worse on the people of Israel. It did not get better. And we made the point that God works in ways that are so far mysterious to us, right? And even you, that God will ask you to do something, and he's not looking for results. He's looking for obedience from you. God was very pleased with the obedience of Moses, even though Moses begins to question whether God had made a mistake. And that gets us to the place that we are. Last week, um, 17 different times, God says to Moses, Moses, look at me. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm the one in the past that has redeemed and made promises and kept my covenant, and I've never failed. And then he made promises towards the future, right? Another 12 times or so of all that he was going to do. And then it ended in uh, chapter 6, verse 28. I think I have this on the screen. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? In other words, Moses is still, is still continuing to look at himself. Then into chapter 7. And what I hope to do today is cover uh, a few characteristics of God as we see God working here. Not all of them. This is not an exhaustive list. There's way many more than this, even in this passage. We have time for a few today. And then next week, we're going to try to go through all the plagues on one Sunday. So we're going to just, just see the wrath of God um, and, all, and all of creation coming against Egypt um, and some things that we'll learn there, and we'll try not to make it an hour and a half either. We'll try to get through it uh, fairly quickly today um, as well as next week. So it ended, the passage Kate read in chapter 7 and verse 1. She ended with verse 5. I tell you what, would you stand with me again for the, as we continue to read God's word? And we'll go through 13, starting in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out, bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to, Mo to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did by the, some secret arts, did the same by some secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, but still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the battle lines are drawn, and you can see it, can't you? The most powerful man in the known world, Pharaoh, leading the most impressive nation, holding on to maybe the most coveted resource, the Nile River, is about to take on the wrong opponent. 
what we will see in the coming weeks will be a battle of cosmic proportion, certainly so, although mismatched in every way. We're going to see really the nature and character of God, his care for his people, his heart of deliverance and redemption working through Moses and um, in a way certainly connected uh, to Jesus and even today. So what I want to talk about today through this passage is um, just a few things, a few of God's character traits that we see through this passage. And the first is this, that God works through people. He works through people. God doesn't see like we do. Again, Moses, in the previous chapter, 17 times, God says, Moses, look at me, 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 look at me. Look at me, buddy. Look at me. It's all about me. And then how does Moses end the chapter? God, you know, these these lips, they're just they're just I'm just not doing the job. I just don't think I can do it. So convicting to my own heart. As God asks us to be obedient and tells us all the reasons why we should not fear as we walk into what he has called us to walk into. And yet all we can see is our frailty and our weakness and our failures. But God's not limited to those things. He doesn't get hung up on our failures. He doesn't care what other people think about us or even uh, uh, say about us. He doesn't give that real thoughts. God is weaving us into the story of redemption, chapter after chapter, scene after scene. Wouldn't it be so much easier if God just snapped his fingers and did it himself? Yes, easier, yes. But that's not what God wants to do. He wants to use us. He wants to use the church. He wants to use every one of you to be part of his redemptive plan. And because of that very reason, he has chosen the places that you live and the places that you work, that he's stirring in some of your hearts right now, right, to forsake, right, the comfortable life and, and, and take a step of faith that might be very challenging to you because God works through people. Look at there in verse 1 as he says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet, and you shall speak all that I command. In the original Hebrew language, it doesn't even have uh, the word like in it. It just says, see, I have made you God to Pharaoh. The point is, Moses, you're going to be the closest thing to God that Pharaoh will ever see on this side of eternity. You are my representative before him. And I will speak to you, and you will speak to him my words through your brother Aaron. And what you say will certainly come true. To understand why God would say something like this, we have to remember that Pharaoh was considered a god by all the Egyptians. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh considered himself a god. That was the understanding of the Pharaohs. Think of the most famous Pharaoh. He wasn't really the most impressive Pharaoh. He didn't reign for that long. But because of the archaeology discoveries that we've had, uh, King Tut, you know him, I think I have a picture of him on the screen, right? This is King Tut, and uh, just the very nature of his picture, um, we're going to talk about some of these things, right, of, of them thinking themselves to be God. 
He reigned in the 4th century B.C., and this exodus is probably happening in the 15th century. I mention his name because his full name, Tutankhamun, means in the living image of Amon. Amon was a major Egyptian deity. I mention that to you, not because, again, that he was the Pharaoh here, but because of the common, un, common understanding that the Pharaohs thought themselves to be the living representation of God. Amon was the Egyptian deity who fused with the sun god Ra. So you've heard of his name, Amon-Ra, and that's actually the end of King Tut's name, right? He became this chief national deity. King Tut was his embodiment, the living reality, the living image of God to everyone who would see him. But amazingly, look at the contrast here in our text. It's not the king of Egypt who thought himself to, God, to be God, who everyone else thought was God. It's not the king of Egypt who will be God to Moses. No, that's what the Pharaoh thinks. Moses, some half-breed from a God-forsaken desert in Midian, you're going to come to me and I'm going to be God, and I'm going to be God to you, you little piddling prophet. That's what Mo uh, Pharaoh thinks. But the Lord says, no, you got it all wrong, Pharaoh. It's just the opposite. This old man, this shepherd vagabond who has no real home, who's come to free a bunch of slaves, will actually be God to you. God uses people to work out his redemptive plan. And here's Moses, thinking he is done, right? He's 80 in the desert, thinking he's seeing things. Dementia is coming. He's seeing this bush burning and God speaking to him, uh, speaking to him through it, but it, yet it does not consume. And God says, Okay, Moses, now I have a plan for you. And God is going to use these, this small tribe of Israelites, growing in number, yes, but still far fewer than the people of Egypt. And he is going to step in and he is going to use them as a redemptive post so all the world could see it. God uses people and he wants to use you. For time, let's keep moving. Second thing we see about God through this passage is that God takes care of his children. Look at verse 4 with me. Pharaoh will not listen to you, and then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great act of judgment. God brought them to Egypt to save them from the extreme famine. And God has promised that he's going to bring them out. It does not matter what Pharaoh says. God says, I will bring my people out. God has not changed. And he still cares for his people. God always uses a remnant. And even in times where it looks like God is not active, and the number of people who would consider him um, their God and worship him in spirit and truth seem few. God always uses the few that are there. He takes care of his children and uses them to accomplish incredible things. And he's not changed. He still cares for his people. Maybe you need to remind yourself of that very truth that God cares for you. When you put your faith in Christ, God commissions himself to protect, to provide, 
and to care for you. Philippians 4.19 says that my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. God always provides for his children, though often it's not the way that we expect, maybe not the way that we even hope. The challenge for us this morning is to see that God's provision and care is there even when it's different than we expect because God is God and his ways are higher than ours. Sometimes we have to just sit back and, and it should provide much comfort to you that God is sovereignly in control of the cosmos, that he is in control of literally everything and that he is working for your good and for his glory. Sometimes he graciously gives us insight to what he's doing, but not always and not everything. John Piper says it this way, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of one of them. Think about that. God at work in 10,000 ways in us, and we can see the one or the two or the three that he's given us insight into. Over and over again, Jesus' disciples miss what God was doing in the person of Christ right in front of them. They miss the point of the miracles. They miss the point of the lessons, which should give us hope, right, for our own lack of clarity today. Here are a few I just want to go through super quick, just a few important encouragements that kind of come under that heading that God cares for his children. One, that God may provide differently than we expect. The Israelites... In coming weeks, we're going to see escape captivity in Egypt only to face the challenges of the desert. One of the biggest challenges for such a large group of nomads, right, was enough food to eat. But over and over again, God would provide supernaturally for his people. And if he could provide for many thousands of Israelites in the middle of the desert, then surely he can meet your family's needs. One of the most precious testimonies of Scripture in Psalms 27, uh, 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, the psalmist says, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. But even with God's supernatural provision, the Israelites still complained. They still grumbled. They longed for the food that they left behind in Egypt. God was literally providing them bread from heaven, enough every day. But they wanted his provision in a different way. They grumbled against the God who was providing for them. And the lesson for us is this, that we should ask God to provide for us in whatever way he seems fit. And don't grumble against the way that he is working. And don't give up trusting him every step of the way. God cares for his children. Another way he cares for his children, that he provides more of himself. Israel will soon follow a pillar of fire by night and a hovering cloud by day. God would set up this tabernacle system so the people would realize that God is with them. But to a much greater extent, do we get to see Christ at work in and around us? Our greatest need is not for more provision. Our greatest need is for more of God. And this is something that God gladly gives us. In Matthew 7, Jesus, one of Jesus' teachings, he says, Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Scripture tells us to make pursuit of God the primary functions of our very own lives. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Psalms 34, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As one pastor has proddingly asked, what is the deepest root of your joy? Is it what God, is it what God gives to you, or is it what God is to you? God graciously guides us into greater realization that our ultimate need is for more of his word, for more of him. The third way that God just continually reminds us that he cares for us is that his ultimate provision is found in Christ and culminated in eternity. Hebrews 11 gives us two different perspectives of God's provision and care for us, some by faith, It says, came through life victorious while others lost their lives. But both are commended for their mighty faith. God does not always provide and care for us in ways that we might expect in this life. The Bible doesn't promise this. Peter, James, John, and Paul gave their very lives for the gospel. They viewed the gospel as the treasure not to be lost at any cost. They suffered gladly because they had something in the gospel that the world could not take from them. Friends, this life is fleeting. It's fragile. It's but a vapor's breath. The next life and the age to come is where all of God's provision and care for us will ultimately make sense and come together as a whole. We might not receive healing in this life, but we will receive perfect healing in eternity. We might not see all of our answers to all of our greatest prayers in this life, but we will certainly receive fully in eternity all that God has for us. Some days God's provision seems distant. He seems far off, but it will be so ever-present in eternity. But peace doesn't wait until then. We don't have to wait until eternity to find peace. Peace is available now. Jesus told his disciples, my peace I give to you. All of that to kind of build up this point that God cares for you. Now, some of us have a hard time believing that. We don't feel that way. But it is certainly true if there's anything we see. As we read through all of the Old Testament and see God's character revealed again and again is that he cares for us. The third thing we see in this passage, the nature and character of God, is that God is jealous for his glory. He's jealous We use that as a negative term, but it's not always negative. God is jealous for his glory. It says in verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That could be another thesis statement for the book of Exodus. Certainly for the chapters ahead, we might ask, why ten plagues? Why ten times? So the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. Who is the true God deserving of our worship? The point of this passage is that Yahweh is God and Pharaoh is not. Could God have done it with one plague? Absolutely. Could he have just snapped his fingers and it been all over? Absolutely. Could on the first time that Moses went in and asked God to release the people of Israel, 
Couldn't he have said yes? He could have. But in every one of those instances, Moses would have been the one that would have been praised. Look at what Moses did. But no, God didn't do it that way. And he did it this way at this time and this place so that we would see him as most glorious. Let's not forget that Moses is not the hero and neither is Pharaoh. It's the, it's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh is God. He's in charge. He's the most lovely and the most worthy and the most glorious and really the only one that deserves our worship. And one way that we see this in this passage again and again and again, and we're going to see it again next week as we look at the plagues, we see God's glory on display through his complete sovereignty, even over the hearts of men. You'll see this passage in our text today in verse 3 and in verse 13. Let's look at verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiplied my signs and wonders uh, in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Again in verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was burdened, oh, I mean was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So we're going to try to answer um, this. I'm not kidding that I had uh, several weeks of seminary class over this one phrase, and we're going to try to do it in the next five minutes. We've seen this before, and we'll see it again, that there are a number of different ways that this is expressed in Exodus, that Pharaoh had a hard heart. Sometimes it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Others that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh sinned and his heart was hardened. We have this reference 19 times of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And you'll notice as we read it in the coming weeks that the language fluctuates. Three times we have a reference to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Six times just a general reference that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And ten times it explicitly says that the, Lord's, the Lord willed it. He did it. He made his heart hard. What are we to make of this? We see that God is sovereign over the heart, certainly, but not in ways that remove Pharaoh's own pers- uh, responsibility and culpability. As it said, even on occasion, yet Pharaoh sinned again and his heart was hardened. Pharaoh was held responsible for his actions and activities because they were his own actions. It was a divine hardening according to a rotten will. Not in opposition to a humble disposition, Pharaoh, in his hard heart, continued to do what he wanted to do. Friends, that is the definition of a hard heart. Where you continue to do what you want to do. In comparison to a soft heart or a heart of flesh that is humble and seeks what God wants over what you want. It's the picture of Jesus in the garden as he prayed. I don't want to walk into this. God, but not about me. It's what you want. This is why the objection is often raised in this passage. That you, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you must just think that we're robots or puppets on a string. And that doesn't work. It doesn't hold up under any real uh, theological scrutiny. The analogy does not hold. 
If you're a puppet on a a string, then you have no will. That you're just moving your arms up and down or your legs side to side because someone is pulling or prodding you. If you're moving by external coercion or compulsion. But that's not what's understood here in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That's not even what Reformed theologians would understand by the sovereignty of God here. Pharaoh is willing to do what is evil because his heart is evil. You must not picture Pharaoh humbly beseeching Yahweh. God, I just want to do what's right. I want to let these people go. And then God plays that little hand, the little game like you play with your kids, and you take their hands and you start hitting them in the face and say, hey, why are you hitting yourself? Am I the only one that does that? Okay, that's, that's the kind of fun we have around our house. That's not what God's doing here. He's not grabbing Pharaoh's heart and saying, you will never let these people go, even though you want to. That's not what sovereignty means. It's not external coercion or compulsion. This heart hardened by Pharaoh and God is nevertheless Pharaoh's own heart, which is yielding forth his own wicked stubbornness, not puppets, not robots. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and why it's mentioned so many times, is not to tell us more about Pharaoh, but to show us something about the sovereignty of God. And some things about this we're just not going to understand. There is some complexity to this of us trying to understand the higher ways of God that we don't. I think the point is this for us, if we can bring this down home quickly. One of the greatest supernatural work that happens today is when God takes a heart of stone and supernaturally changes it into a heart of flesh. This is what the prophet would say in the Old Testament of the supernatural work. It's one of the prayers that we pray over this gathering every Sunday when we gather. That God would do the supernatural work of taking hearts of stone. Even as Jason read in Ephesians 2, hostile towards God. Not wanting anything to do and make them into hearts of flesh. And that's mainly talking about like conversion, right? When we move from living in the darkness into living in the light. And yet sin still remains in us. Even those of us who are Christians in this room, if we're not careful, we will harden our hearts again to the ways of God. And here's how we do that. By asserting our will again over God's will. Our will over his. We're glad and we will freely give a certain amount of things into into his lordship. God, I want you to take my Sundays and I want you to take 10% of my, uh, my money and uh, I'll open my home once a week. And we give, we give God the list of things that we're willing to allow him to use. Yet maybe on this other side of the list are the things in which we've hardened our heart around. God, I'm not going to give you my sexuality. God, I'm not going to give you my kiddos. Um, you, might, you might send them to be a missionary somewhere. Uh, I'm not going to give you my comfort. Lord knows when Stephen gets up here and makes an appeal in just a minute for, uh, for you to move to New Orleans and help him plant a church. Lord, definitely not that, anywhere but that, right? Or when Jamie uh, frequently gets up and talks about trips overseas or whatever we're doing. Like the, mo- for most of us, that's in, the, that's in the don't mess with this Lord list, right? Our hearts have become hardened. Sometimes our hearts are hardened because of how people have hurt us. And we don't, we don't want God to move in their life. We're, we're like Jonah. And we're like, God, they are the most despicable people. 
They're like the disciples. Remember when the disciples went through, uh, went through the one town in, in Samaria and they wanted to call down fire from heaven on them? It's like, the, it's like my initial like, fleshly reaction when I drive in traffic. Like, God, just call fire down. You know, don't, don't hurt them. Just let their car catch on fire. And then, maybe, I, don't, I don't really, I, I say that sometimes. Um, don't be so hard on Pharaoh and his hardened heart. When we have sections of our own heart that we've said, God, I want you to be Lord of my life, parts of it. And I want you to take me to heaven one day, but I want to live my life the way I want to live it now. Listen, here's the point, and the last thing that we see is that God always wins. There's this great little passage at the end. Did you pick this up about the snakes? Pretty cool. You remember that this is the little lesson that God told uh, Moses out at the bush with the staff and turn into a snake, and then he told Moses to pick it up. And <clears throat> I said I thought there was probably a, you know, an hour worth of time before God said it to actually Moses did it, trying to convince himself, oh, I'm going to pick up this snake. And so they go into Pharaoh again. This is, the, this is kind of the second round here. And they pick it up in verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded, and Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. You can see Moses, I just, I just played this out of my own mind. He doesn't say this. I just see Moses like, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. He's going to do that thing that he did in the desert. It's going to become this scary snake again. It's just going to be awesome. And then Pharaoh's going to get scared, and he's going to realize that I am the man. And he's going to say, all these people, let's just go. He didn't respond that way in verse 11. And Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down a staff, and they became serpents. And I'm just trying to put myself in Moses' head as they throw down their staffs, and now we just got snakes everywhere, right? Like, this is like, this is not a situation that I want to be in. I'll gladly go to New Orleans. Um, I don't, I don't want to know about this part. And I think Moses is like, man, God picked the wrong party trick. Like, they know how to do this too. And then it says, just to show you the sovereignty of God in this whole thing, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. In other words, this is one bad snake right here. He just eats the other snakes real quickly. But it didn't change Pharaoh's heart. The question is, Will you be like Pharaoh or like Moses? Pharaoh arrogant and proud, Moses weak and humble. James 4, 6 says that God gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Friends, can I tell you that we all need humility? Some of us will embrace it willingly and others will have it forced upon us by God himself. Let me suggest to you one way is easier than the other. My dad used to tell me all the time, and I've shared this with you, said, Luke, God has promised that he's going to conform you into the image of Jesus. He can either use sandpaper to do that or he can use a chainsaw. What he was saying is, is just through the 
continual reading of God's word that God uses like sandpaper and slowly conforms us into the image of his son. And every time we open God's word and we submit ourselves, all of ourselves and all of our plans and dreams and our kids and our futures, and we submit everything to God and say, God, I'm yours. I want to be your man. You do in me what you want to do. And then God begins to use us and we begin to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Yet there are parts of us, as I said before, that we do not want to submit to him. And God says, listen, you are mine, and I am going to conform you into the image of Jesus, whether you want to take that step or not. If you want to go against God, then be proud. If you want God to be for you and help you, then be humble enough to admit that you can't save yourself. Then and only then can God step in and save you through his son, Jesus Christ. God loves to give grace to the humble. Maybe you're thinking in here this morning, I can barely even get out of bed. You should have seen what happened in my house today on the way, on the way here. If you heard the things I said um, on the way here, you would not uh, think that I'm a Christian, right? I can't handle the things that are going on in my life. Everything seems to be, uh, I seem to be weaker and weaker, less in charge than I've ever been. I feel like such a failure, weak, and at the end of myself. Well, then congratulations. You're the exact person that God wants to use. Yet in contrast, if you feel secure and strong and on top of it, feel capable and proud, then beware that you don't wind up just like Pharaoh. The humble, like Moses, are much more than they seem, while the proud, like Pharaoh, are so much less than they imagine they are. To further prove the point, did you notice that Moses is 80? He's going to live to be 120. So even if you think, scale that back a little bit in terms of how long our lives typically are, he's in the last third of his life. And there's some even in this room today, barring any sort of miraculous age-extending discovery pill that we might take, we are in the last third of, you're in the last third of your life. And the cool thing about this is that God might just be getting started with you. This is what God had for Moses. When he thinks he's on the decline, about to retire as a shepherd in the land of Midian, God says, now you're ready. Can you imagine the conversation of Moses as in a typical American teenager or something? He's 15. Watch out, world, here I come. I've got plans for you, God says. Big plans. Moses, man, I can't wait. Just wait till I graduate, God. The world has no idea what's going to hit them. God says, I'm going to use you, Moses, but not when you graduate. No, I'll take you when you're 80. Your whole life is going to be preparation for this one thing that I'm going to do through you. When you get to the last third of your life, the last part of your career, maybe it's then that God wants to use you. Maybe it's through your prayers, through the resources you give away. Maybe it's with encouragement. I don't know what it is. But this is God's plan for Moses as he enters the last part of his life. I love this quote from D.L. Moody. I think I have it on the screen. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was nobody. Finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. 
That's pretty good, isn't it? So it takes, if it takes you 80 years to find out that you're a nobody so that God can finally use you as a somebody, I pray it doesn't take that long for you to realize that you're nothing without Christ, to surrender everything to him. I believe with strong conviction that you were born at this very moment in history because you are the best person to reach those people who are around you. That's why you're here. That God chose to plant you at this time in history. Of all the thousands of years of history, he chose now. He chose this area and this job and this neighborhood. And he's planted you there because you're the one. As Moses was uniquely qualified to do this, even though Moses couldn't see it, he was raised up. Right in, the, in, in, in Pharaoh's own house. He learned how to write. That's why we have the history recorded as the way we do it. He spent 40 years in Midian, which would be where he would, you know, spend the next 40 years with these Israelites. And he knew every waddling hold that he could take them to and everything to get ready for. He was uniquely qualified in the same way that you are uniquely qualified to reach the people that God has put in your path. God chose your unique personality and your unique story. He gave you unique spiritual gifts. You've got some unique scars in your life where you've been hurt and wounded and you've seen God come in and restore and he wants to use those as the very means of your redemptive story to the watching world. And he's put people in your path that need to hear how God has shown up and been faithful in your life. He's crafted your personality and your unique ability and story and he's put you here at this time in history to be a redemptive force upon the darkness that's around you. He's not looking for the most impressive, not looking for the one with the most resources, not the one with the most power, gifting, or natural abilities. God is looking for those who are willing, humble, and obedient. Say what you want about Moses and his attitude certainly rotten through some of this but every time God says hey Moses go to Pharaoh he gets up and goes he kept willingly following where God sent him no matter how difficult the task reminds you of Jesus does it not that no matter what God put before Jesus even death on a cross what does it say in Philippians he didn't Consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he took the form of a servant. That's the step that God's asking all of us to take, that we would be a servant. That we wouldn't try to impress anybody, that we wouldn't be posers in here. That we wouldn't look at our line of past success or failures with any sort of pedigree. That we would say, okay, God, I just give everything I have to you. This is what we celebrate with communion. Every week we try to do this as we take the bread and dip it in the cup and proclaim Christ's death again and again until we come. We're in essence saying that I can't do anything by myself that is only through the body and blood, the death of Christ, that I am made alive. And we take that and remember that and what God's called us to. And then we go sit back in our seats for a moment and meditate on that truth, eventually to walk out these doors as the actual hands and feet of Christ to a watching world. Let me pray for us. I would encourage you as you're there and spending time with God, that you would just ask him, God, what are you calling me to? And that you would surrender any of the lies of the enemy that you have begun to believe. 
that because of your past that God doesn't want to use you, that because of your frailty that God can't use you, like Moses, that you would just give God what you have. You'd lay your own ego down, your own aspirations, even your own dreams. Say, God, I want to be your man. I want to be your woman. I, w- I want to be your servant. Or send me where you will. God, as we prepare our hearts to take communion, we repent of any known sin that might be in our life. We bring those things to the foot of the cross. And we hear you remind us that our sins have been paid for because of your death, burial, and resurrection. That we would remember that and be our hearts be full of gratitude, that we would be emboldened. And we would remember, God, that you are the one at work. And even if we can't see the 10,000 10, things you're doing behind the scenes, Lord, would we just grab your hand and trust your heart? Say, God, I'll follow you wherever. Lord, would you do this in us as the people of Covenant Church? That we wouldn't be focused on the 99 righteous and ignoring the one that is lost, but you would raise up a people. Their hearts would be so burdened for the lost, the broken, that we would willingly sacrifice comfort and money and resources to go after the one that you've put in our path, in our neighborhood, in our workplace. Lord, do in our hearts as you will.